So Revelation chapter 20, uh, page, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1248. 1248. You'll see it's entitled in the NIV, The Thousand Years, Revelation 21 to 6, and this is God's Word. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Amen. We want to keep that open because we're going to look at it tonight. If you're visiting with us, we've been working our way in the evenings uh, through this book of Revelation. And uh, I've tried my best to hand all the tricky passages off to John and uh, Uh, Sometimes I've succeeded and sometimes I haven't, and uh, tonight I've sort of messed it up a little bit, uh, because this is, uh, uh, I think everybody would say, this is probably one of the the most disputed parts of Revelation as we deal with what this book tells us about the millennium. You see here in verses 2 and 3, references made to this period of a thousand years. It's called the millennium. Millennium coming from the the Latin word for thousand. We have millimeter, which is a thousandth of a meter. We have millipede, which somebody obviously just gave up counting the legs on a a wee wiggly thing and and said, oh, there must be a thousand on that. And, and, And Christians have disagreed strongly about what this means or what this refers to. Now, let me say at the outset, this is is not a matter of of what we might call first importance. I'm sure we realize that that there there are uh, all sorts of disputes and disagreements about theological matters, and and some are much more important than others. Some, Some strike at the very heart of what genuine Christianity is. So, for example, there have been those who have uh, questioned whether Jesus was truly God or not. And uh, the church addressed this very early in its history and made it clear that to believe that Jesus is not fully God puts you outside of Orthodox Christian faith. In other words, if you hold that, you you cannot be said to be believing the gospel. It's, It's a matter of first importance. But then there are matters that are not matters of first importance. Baptism, for example, Should children be baptized or not? And and today, it's one of the great disagreements amongst Christians, but it's a disagreement amongst Christians. 
great and godly people come down on on different sides of that debate, and, and they treat one another as brothers and sisters because they are brothers and sisters. It's not a matter of first importance. Now, now, this matter of the millennium falls into that second sort of category. It's not a matter of first importance. Great and godly people have taken different conclusions about what this is saying. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive hard to understand it and come to a conclusion on it, but, but we respect those who, who have taken a different view. So with that said, what is it that John sees here? Well, you've We've just read uh, Revelation 21 to 6, and you see in broad terms what happens. He sees an angel coming down from heaven, seizing Satan, chaining him, casting him into the abyss, and he's held there for a thousand years so that he's no longer able to deceive the nations. And then there's a sort of a second part to the vision, and he sees the souls of martyrs who came to life in the first resurrection, and they, they reign with Christ for that same period, a thousand years. Now, what, what does that uh, mean? Well, as I say, Christians have debated this. There are, there are three main views, and, and we don't often uh, do this, but I think that this evening we sort of need to, to do this. There are three main views, uh, and the, the first um, is, is what we'll call premillennialism. And, and the key here is that uh, pre, Jesus comes back pre before the millennium. He comes back before the thousand years, okay? So, so here's uh, what premillennialists believe about this. Christ will return with the heavenly saints. He will destroy the the beasts from the land, the beasts from the sea, we've already seen uh, these uh, uh, being described to us in Revelation 13. And, and, and Satan at that point is removed from the earth and, and bound in the abyss, as we've just read here. And, and those Christians who have died are resurrected to reign with Jesus over the world. And, and this period lasts for a thousand years. Many believe it's a, a literal thousand years. Others maybe see it slightly more symbolically. And then after that <clears throat> millennial period, Satan is released from the abyss and leads a great rebellion against Christ. And at the last moment, uh, God intervenes and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And then, <coughs> excuse me, and then there's the uh, the, the dead are resurrected. There's a final judgment takes place, and death and hell or, or, or death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire as well, as are those who do not believe, and, and, and a new heaven and a new earth are established. Now, uh, th there are many variations of this view, uh, but, but here's a diagram, for example, that, that maybe helps us uh, here we are. So, so you can see that the, the cross is, is obviously when Jesus comes, uh, originally his first coming, and then you see the millennium there as the white bar. The tribulation is a time of intense persecution for the church. It's followed by Jesus' second coming. He reigns for a thousand years with uh, the, the saints, 
And then uh, there is a, a period of, of uh, uh, Satan up, uprising again. And then there's the final judgment. So you see Jesus' second coming and the final judgment are separated by this period of a thousand years. Now, uh, other people add into this uh, a rapture and you get pre-tribulation rapture people and post-tribulation rapture people and all sorts of uh, different views. But, but, but that's basically the, the outline uh, of premillennialism. Post-millennialism is a different uh, approach, and here Christ returns post the millennium, after the millennium. And what happens is that the church, in this view, continues to make progress by the preaching of the gospel. The two beasts of Revelation 13 are overcome. So political power that's set up against God and false ideology are a, a overcome. There follows, as the church makes this progress, a wonderful period of peace and prosperity, which is the millennium, either a literal thousand years or a long period. And, and, and Satan is, is bound, as it were, by the triumph of the gospel. His influence is almost gone in the world for that period. But then he is allowed to emerge or reemerge for one last fight, as it were, against God. Satan is defeated then, and Christ returns to judge the world. So he returns after, post the millennium. Satan and unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire, and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. So, so our second diagram then, post-millennialism, you see that the, the, there is no coming of Christ before the millennium. The church advances, ushers in this, as it were, golden age, and then Christ comes uh, after the millennium. A view is probably slightly less common today, but it did uh, gain significant traction at the time of the great missionary movements because there was a great optimism that the gospel would triumph over everything before it, as it were, in the, in the world. And, and you could see how with that spirit of optimism, it was uh, a, a, maybe perhaps easier to lay hold of a, a fairly optimistic view of the progress of the church within the world. Now, <clears throat> neither of those views are the, are the views that, that we've sort of been relying on as we've made our way through this book. And we come then to the third view, which is amillennialism. And, and, and that says that the thousand-year period, the millennium, is actually what we're living in here and now. So it's not a literal number of years. It is, like so many other numbers in Revelation, it is a symbolic number. It is a, a metaphor for the church age, for the time between the first coming of Christ and just about the second coming of Christ. And, and during this time, well, there is oppression of the church. We, we've just seen that in the Tear Fund video political power and false ideology. But at the same time, at the same time, Satan is bound. He is not as powerful as he could be. God restrains him. And the nations are able to be reached with the gospel. And the glorified saints, will they reign with Jesus now? But there will come a time when Satan will have more power, there will be a great oppression of the church just shortly before the end, the period of the, the Antichrist. Jesus will return and destroy the evil one. The dead will be raised and judged. Unbelievers punished, but uh, the new heavens and the new earth 
ushered in. So, so there's the diagram for amillennialism, the white bar, the millennium, a filling, and as it were, the, the whole time between the two comings uh, of Christ. Now, th- that is the, the view that's most common, I guess, within Presbyterian circles, although there are Presbyterians who hold other views, but it does seem to, to me, certainly to make best sense of the text. And it is saying that there is no gap between the coming of Christ and the last judgment. When Christ comes, he will judge and institute the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ comes back, that's really it. Everything happens then. Now, with, with those views in mind, we're going to try and look more closely uh, at these six verses and see what it is going, is going on. Remember where we've come from as we've got into this. Chapter 19 closes with a great battle. A few weeks ago, we looked at this. And, and the forces of the evil one are destroyed, and the birds of the air feast on their flesh. Now, that has all the hallmarks of describing the last battle, which, which as it were, would be right before the second coming of Christ on this diagram. And if that's the case, we, we find that, that chapter 20 is not following on chronologically from there. Like so many occasions in this book, chapter 20 is another action replay. It's taking us back to tell us the story from a different angle. The biblical scholars tell, uh, call it recapitulation. So, so here's this new perspective on what's happening now. And John sees an angel coming down from heaven and he binds Satan. So look at verses 1, 2, and 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Now, Now, when does this happen? This is the question. Is this something that's yet to come, or is it something that's already taken place? I want to suggest to you it's already taken place, and there's a parallel with one of the other action replays, with several actually, but with one of the other action replays in Revelation 12. There, Satan is hurled down from heaven, and it's in the context of the first coming of Christ, the woman who has the the child and so on. Now, now, we see this also in, in Jesus' own teaching, that the, the claim that his arrival is a serious blow to the evil one. So in Matthew 12, we don't have time to look up all of these references, but in Matthew 12, 29, Jesus describes his work like uh, entering a strong man's house and, ro- and, and robbing him, tying him up. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out the disciples on a mission trip. They they find that they have authority to preach and to cast out demons. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven in the context of the proclamation of the gospel. So it's it's appropriate, I think, from the biblical record to, uh, to speak of the binding of Satan in connection with the arrival of Jesus. Now, then the question is, well, well, why is Satan bound in such way? Well, that tells us here. It's to keep him from deceiving the nations. Now, you think of what it was like to be in a nation outside of the people of God before the time of Jesus Christ. By and large, 
you would have been in absolute darkness. People in the nations did not come to know of God or his promises. We're finding out more, aren't we, about ancient history and civilizations that existed when Abraham was wandering across the Middle East. People like the Aztecs and the Mayans. And what we know of them is is that in some ways they were incredibly advanced, but in other ways they were devoid of of gospel witness and and often marked by a culture of death, uh, sacrificing children, for example. And there was no gospel witness. God's people were to be a light to the nations, but they had little impact at that time. Now, there were a few exceptions, people like Ruth and Naaman and the preaching of Jonah to the Ninevites, for example. Various names that appear in the biblical record that indicate they had come in to join the people of God. But by and large, the saving work of God was not experienced amongst the nations. And in that sense, they were... They were deceived. They were under Satan's deceptive influence. And then what happens when Christ comes? Well, the good news begins to explode out to the nations. Jesus commissioned the disciples and us to take the good news to the ends of the world. He he describes his coming as a light dawning on the Gentiles, the the, the nations. So, so for example, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins to preach, He is based in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And Matthew says that this is to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Simeon, when he meets the baby Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter 2, he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So you see, the nations are in darkness until the coming of Christ by and large, and then with Christ, a light has dawned upon them. It, it's the earthly story of what happens in Psalm 2 as, as uh, uh, words are said there that fully apply to Jesus. He said to me, God speaking, he said to me, you are my son today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So you see, at the, at the first coming of Christ, Satan is bound. The church is persecuted. We've seen that in Nigeria. It's dreadful. But the persecution that he would, Satan would like to bring is massively restricted. And, And at the same time, the gospel is going out to the nations, to the ends of the earth. We are, we are living in this time. The, we don't feel it. We feel as if we're in the back foot. In many other places in the world, if we were in church tonight, we would have a sense that the gospel was just sweeping all before it because Satan is bound and the gospel is going forth. So this is another viewpoint, another action replay describing what's happening here and now. Satan is bound. However, it won't continue that way forever as we have already seen. The picture that Revelation seems to paint for us is just before the end. There will be a time of 
really terrible persecution against the church. It might even look to the outsider as if the church is wiped out altogether. In Revelation 13 and 7, we see that the beast from the sea, which seems to stand for sort of political power, the beast of the sea will lead the kings of the earth to, to rise up against the church, that there will be a, there will be a, a, a making war on the saints. And, and it says that they, they, he will conquer them. And that seems to be what's referenced here in, in verse 3. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I don't know how you feel about that. 30 years ago, I, I would have found it very hard to imagine how the world could be unified enough to, in some sort of united way, turn against the church. I find it less hard to imagine now. Because now the world is increasingly united and interconnected. Viewpoints that are expressed in County Armagh could be heard and, and liked and acted upon by millions around the world before tonight is out. So it's not hard to see how the, the pushing of the church to the margins in some places could become the approach that's taken in all places. But for now, Satan is bound. Well, then we get to verse 4. And this second little section, as it were, John says, I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, it seems this is speaking about the, the same a thousand years. Here's another little change of perspective. In other words, this is happening now in heaven. In Revelation, thrones are, are pretty much always in heaven. And John sees the souls of the faithful martyrs. For those first Christians who, who read this book, who heard this book read to them, they would have known the names of some of the people that John was speaking about people who had given their lives for Jesus rather than bow before Caesar. But in a broader way, these faithful martyrs represent all of God's departed people. Because ultimately the mark of a Christian is that they have gone God's way rather than the world's way. They are faithful to the end. Now notice that it is souls that John sees. The text seems to emphasize that. And it's, it's a reference, isn't it? We perhaps know this. It's a reference that, that when we die, if we're Christians, we go to be with Christ, but we await our resurrection bodies. So just now, God's people in heaven are, how can we put this, not yet complete there is something yet to happen to them. Short of Catechism says this. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Question 37. The souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. But you see, this passage is telling us that as they wait, 
they reign. They share in Christ's reign. Now, I don't really know what this is, is like. We're part of his judgments. But, but Jesus graciously involves us in his rule. He gives us authority. He shares that with us somehow. I don't know what that's like, but, but it's, it's great. And you see this little phrase, the first resurrection? What's that talking about? Well, it, it could be a reference to Jesus' resurrection, but it seems perhaps to be a way of talking about the fact of, of the death of the saints. Those who have been trusting in Christ, they have died and they have gone to be with Christ. Now they're reigning with him. It's described as a resurrection. Second resurrection presumably will be when they receive their resurrection bodies. And so, so death here perhaps described as a resurrection. We query that we perhaps need to address, and that is in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. It's referring to the unbelieving dead, those who have left this world in rebellion against God. And this is not, I think, implying that at the second coming, the unbelieving dead will somehow come to life, but, but it's introduced here by way of contrast. I think the NIV does that by putting it in brackets. And and it's sort of saying, as it were, look, here's the amazing privilege of the deceased saints, but there's no such life for the unbeliever. And it's not that that will change whenever Christ returns. They will be finally and fully judged. They will enter the second death, as we will eventually see. So here we have Revelation 20, 1 to 6. It's another replay, even a pair of replays. John sees a picture of what is happening in our world now. And in the universe now, because of the coming of Christ, Satan is bound and the gospel is going to the nations. At the same time, the dead and the Lord are reigning with Christ. The millennium is now. Now, <clears throat> two very simple things as far as application is concerned. Well, what does this mean? We've, <clears throat> we've wrestled with some of these Viewpoints, things that Christians disagree over. We try to make sense of this text, but what does it mean for us? Well, two things that I think we can really stand on. One is this. We may hope for and work for gospel progress. We may hope for and work for gospel progress because we live at a time when Satan is bound. Oh, he is an enemy. He's a roaring lion. He is still active. But he is not able to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew, and uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, he talks about the end and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So we can have confidence tonight that the nations will hear. Sin cannot stop the, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And you know what that means? That means that we should be full of hope that those that we long to respond to the gospel will respond. Because Satan is bound. He cannot stop the ingathering of God's people. So, Pray for your family and friends. Talk to them about the gospel. 
Tell them about Jesus and what he has done for you. And expect a response because Satan is bound. God's people will be gathered in. And and if that's the case, it may be that some of us might go to the nations. Your labor for the Lord would not be in vain if that was was to be how you would spend your life. You can go expectantly because it is God's purpose that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation in glory. Might God use you as part of that? Might you spend your life for that purpose? I was telling somebody the other day that the the early missionaries in Africa only expected to live eight years, two years if you were in the West if you were in West Africa. Some of them took coffins with them. Apparently they made great bookshelves if you stood them up on the end until you needed them. They, they really believed that the gospel needed to be taken to the nations. I wonder, do we believe that? Maybe if we grasp these verses, we'll believe it a little more. Do you know when I was about 17 or 18, there were two girls from our church, Karen and Rhonda, Kilkeel, and they felt that God was calling them to move to the west of Ireland. They up sticks and, and they, they were flatmates and, and they moved to Westport. And for 20, 30 years, they've just labored away in Westport talking to people about Jesus. Just this weekend... A new church was opened down there. Fruit of their labor. They've taken the gospel. Not to the ends of the earth. But a long way from Kilkeel. We may hope for and work for gospel progress. The the, the second thing. the, The last thing. We may live with comfort and expectation of glory. This is to do with the reigning saints. Death is hard. It's sad. It hurts terribly. We mourn and we grieve. We, we should because separation is dreadful. And those of us know that if we've lost a parent or a husband or a wife or a child. And that's most of us. But... What does this say? It says they are reigning. John calls death the first resurrection. It takes us to be with Jesus. We need to recover some of that hope, don't we? Because as the believer, you see, your, your soul goes to be with Christ. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we know some of these people who are presently reigning. They they are some of those that we mourn. And yet, what does the Bible say? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Oh, we must weep for the separation and pain of losing a loved one. But not for them, because they are reigning. And so will you if you're in Christ. You see, we may live more confidently in this life 
if we had a keener sense of what awaits us in the next. Believer, you'll reign with Christ. So, Revelation 6. What does it mean? We may hope for and work for gospel progress. Pour your life into it. Make it your chief end to make him known. And we may live with the comfort of and the expectation of glory. Let's pray together. We confess, O Lord, that we are quick to think of here and now, of things that we can see and taste and touch, and slow to think of what is eternal and yet very real. So, Lord, we pray that you will lift our eyes and help us to see the truth of your word, the greatness of what you are doing, and help us to trust you day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.